you're listening to a City on a Hill podcast. We'd love you to use and share this podcast, but please refrain from editing the content without permission from City on a Hill. If you'd like to know more about our church, or if you'd like to donate to the work of City on a Hill, please visit cityonahill.com.au. 1 Corinthians, chapter 1, verses 1 to verse 9. Paul, called by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus and our brother Sosthenes, to the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints together with all those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace of God that was given you in Christ Jesus, that in every way you were enriched in him in all speech and all knowledge, even as a testimony about Christ was confirmed among you, so that you are not lacking in any gift as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will sustain you to the end, guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful, by whom you were called into the fellowship of his Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, you know it's bad when they go quiet. Uh, my wife, Ivana, and I have three kids, three boys, Finn, Jude, Tate, uh, 12 syllables, three names. We're very efficient, and we like to think that we'd run a pretty tight ship, but our kids are constantly messing that up. You turn your back for a moment, and they just go nuts. Uh, you have them playing Lego all quietly and nicely, and then you come in, and you see that they've just desecrated your intricate sorting system. Or you give them a treat, you let them have an episode night, having their dinner in front of the TV, you come back in and you find chicken nuggets strewn all across the floor and the cat's wearing tomato sauce like a lipstick. Uh, you, uh, you turn your back for just a moment and everything just goes nuts. What I've learned is that it's the worse when they're quiet. The quieter they are, the more havoc they're planning. Uh, one night a few years ago, uh, my wife was home alone. I was still coming home from work or something like that. And she had to duck out just to say day to the neighbor for a few minutes. And then she came back and everything was eerily quiet. Boys went around. For some reason, the cushions had been taken off the couch and nothing was there. All she could hear, though, was some muffled noises from the bedroom. And so she went down the corridor and with great trepidation opened the door to see our youngest, Tate, who was about two, maybe three at the time, preparing to jump off the top bunk onto this pit of cushions. The few moments where she turned her back, they'd taken up parkour and created this massive competition to see who could break the most bones the quickest. You give a kid a moment, just turn your back for a moment and they wreak havoc. 
That story is not too dissimilar to the circumstances surrounding 1 Corinthians. Uh, We're beginning a new series today in the book of 1 Corinthians. It's actually a letter written by the Apostle Paul to the church at Corinth. Uh, Paul had set up this church during his second missionary journey, and it was a really special time for him. He spent about 16 months in the city and saw remarkable signs of fruit and success as God blessed him. This happened despite great opposition. Uh, We're told that there are a lot of people trying to silence his mission, but God encouraged him to keep going. In Acts 18, we read that the Lord came to Paul one night in a vision and said, do not be afraid, but go on speaking and do not be silent for I am with you and no one will attack you to harm you for I have many in this city who are my people. So this was a really significant moment in Paul's ministry, but one that would eventually need to end. Paul was called to be a church planner, to go on further and to create new ministries. And so after about a year and a half in the city, he left for Syria. And I would imagine that he was pretty hopeful about the church at Corinth as he left. He'd spent a long time there. He'd invested in them. He'd cared for them. He'd set up leaders to continue the work after he'd left. But as soon as he turned his back, everything just went nuts. We're going to see just how nuts over the next few months as we study this book. We're going to see squabbles and infighting. We're going to see sexual immorality of a type that even the promiscuous Corinthians thought was just beyond the pale. We're also going to see a kind of blasphemy as sacred things are abused, as the the very special and holy meal, the Lord's Supper, was used as a chance for people to get drunk and to bully other people. This is like that moment when the teacher leaves the classroom just for a moment and by the time they've gotten back, the Lord of the Flies has erupted. Kids are fighting each other, the computer's been chucked out the window, little Johnny's flying around on the overhead fan, strung up by his underpants. This was a church in crisis. And yet when the Apostle Paul sits down to write this letter, he begins it with encouragement and affirmation. He addresses the church as saints. He gives them a message of grace and peace from God. He gives thanks to God for them and assures them of their ultimate identity, their ultimate destiny. They are guiltless and blameless before God right until the end. What's going on here? Why would Paul do this? I mean, can't he see what's going on? This church is on the brink of imploding and yet he offers this encouragement. Of course, Paul does know what's going on, and I'm hoping that we'll see the genius of his response, the God-shaped wisdom of it, as we unpack this passage today. I want to suggest that there's three themes in these opening verses to Corinthians, Uh, the theme of identity, unity, and opportunity. And I want to suggest to you today that these are just as relevant now as they were back then, that this letter was written to the church at Corinth, but to all churches through all ages and in all places. And so it's also written for us. But before we do that, before we dive in, why don't we just pray? Uh, Lord God, we thank you for your word, the Bible. We believe that it is your word, that you breathed it out, giving it to Paul, and then you could give it to us as well. We take this letter then as a message, not just for the church at Corinth, but a message for us today. And so may your spirit work in our hearts to understand it and to be changed by it. Well, I suggested that there were three themes in this passage. And I want to suggest, uh, I want to start with the theme of identity, because in these first verses, I think Paul wants his readers to understand who he is and who they are. 
Paul begins in verse 1, Paul called by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus. Uh, That word apostle is the word given for the special messengers of Christ, the people chosen to proclaim the good news of Jesus to the world. Uh, Jesus chose the apostles personally, the 12 disciples who shared his ministry, then Matthias replaced Judas, and then finally, last of all, Paul was included in this group. This was then a pretty elite number, just a a few people, the inner circle of Christ, the gospel commandos who would go out and plant churches and spread the message of Jesus as places around the Mediterranean and as far as Lebanon and Ethiopia and even India. This was an extraordinary group of people. And we see in the next few weeks, though, that one of the the problems in the church was that uh, they were starting to question Paul's authority. So some people think that he's saying, I'm an apostle of Christ to to reassert who he is. But I don't think that's true. Uh, I think that Paul mentions his apostleship not to draw attention to himself, but to draw attention to Jesus. You see, Paul wants to make it clear that he is an apostle of Christ Jesus because God made him that. He was called by the will of God. Really what he's saying is, I I didn't actually choose this. God chose it for me. He asked me to do this. He called me to do this. So he's really, he's saying that this is his duty, that it's his responsibility. And so he'll actually say later in the letter in chapter nine, if I preach the gospel, that gives me no ground for boasting for necessity is laid upon me. Woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. And yet while he saw it as his duty, he also saw it as his delight. You see, Paul loved Jesus. Do you know, in these first nine verses, he actually uses the name of Jesus nine times. As Leon Morris says, Christ is absolutely central to Paul. His whole identity is founded on Christ and in Christ. Now, he had a pretty interesting journey to this, of course. Uh, Paul grew up as a Jew. He refers to himself elsewhere as a Hebrew of the Hebrews. He was trained as a Pharisee. Now, the Pharisees were the most zealous of the Jews. They protected and guarded the law fiercely, and they were opposed to Jesus. They felt that Jesus was a heretic, a blasphemer, and so they tried to silence that. And Paul was part of that as well. He had tried to snuff out the Christian church just as it was beginning. He hated Jesus, but then he met him. On the road to Damascus, Jesus confronted Paul, confronted him with his sin and then offered him forgiveness. And it changed Paul completely. The man who had persecuted Christians became one. The man who had hated Jesus now loved him and embraced him and his life would never be the same again. He had a new identity. And so when he talks about his apostleship, it's, it's not to boast. It's not to be haughty. It's actually because he's humble. It's because he's happy. He's celebrating this. He's amazed that he gets to do this work. And it's the only thing that he wanted to do. It's the thing that he now committed himself to. This was all that he was about. His life's mission was to know Jesus and to make Jesus known. And so he says to the Corinthians in chapter two, I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. That's all he was about. And he wants them to see that this was his identity because he also wants them to find their identity in Christ as well. And so he says in verse two, to the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints. This word 
sanctified is, is a great little word. It basically means set apart or made holy. When, when something is sanctified, it's dedicated for a holy use. That's what God's people are. If you're a Christian, when you become a Christian, God sets you apart. He, he, you, as one writer puts it, you are devoted to the possession and the service of God. And so you're now called to be a saint, to live according to God, to live for him, to live out his ways. This is your, our identity. That's what Paul wants the Corinthians to understand, because clearly they've lost sight of this. They're proud, they're arrogant, they're ambitious, they're self-centered, they're sexually immoral. As one writer puts it, they may be saints, but they're not living in a saintly way. What's happened? How how did this go on? Well, I think it's because they've allowed the culture of their city become the culture of their church. The city of Corinth was one of the great cities of the Roman Empire and one of its most important. Situated on the tip of the Peloponnese, uh, roughly halfway between Athens and Sparta, it was, says one writer, made for greatness. It was big, perhaps five times as large as Athens. It was rich. It was popular. It was a trade center drawing people from north and south, east and west. And if you were to walk through the streets of Corinth, you would have been just blown away by the amazing architecture. You you would have been captivated by the orators uh, debating philosophy and new ideas in the forum. And if you timed it right, you would have been able to see the Isthmian Games, which were second only in in importance to the Olympic Games. This was an amazing city, just humming with life and possibility and opportunity. And it was a place of ambition. Corinth drew people from every corner of the Roman Empire and they came to Corinth to make their name. If you could make it in Corinth, then you could make it anywhere. And so the whole culture of Corinth was about ambition, about getting ahead, about making your claim and being famous and and, and getting the respect or perhaps even better, the envy of everyone else around you. And it didn't matter how you got it. David Garland writes, schmoozing and massaging a superior's ego, rubbing shoulders with the powerful, pulling strings, scratching each other's back and dragging rivals' names through the mud. All of that describes what was required to attain success in this society. It was also a place that was all about pleasure. Whatever you wanted to do, you could find a way to do it in Corinth. There was someone who would allow you to do that and give you the opportunity of doing that. And so you could push the bounds of morality as far as you wanted. That was what was encouraged here. In fact, the word Corinthian had long become a byword for, for someone who was engaging in debauchery and hedonism and just pursuing pleasure. In ancient Greek plays, for instance, uh, if you saw a person who was from Corinth, they would invariably be depicted as a drunk. This was a place that was all about pleasure. This was a culture that invited you to be whoever you wanted to be and to do whatever you wanted to do. As the writer Stephen um, uh, sums it up, the ideal of the Corinthian was the reckless development of the individual. The true Corinthian type was the man who recognized no superior and no law but his own desires. That was the culture of the city. And it's evident that it had become the culture of the church as well. We often talk as God's people about the importance of being in the world, but not of it. God calls us 
to a specific place, a location, a time. And he tells us to, to really embrace that and to love that. But he also cautions us about being lost within that. You know, when the values of God's kingdom uh, conflict with the values of the place that we're called to, we need to choose God. We need to be in the world, but not of it. It's clear, though, in Corinth that they're getting this really wrong. As the writer James Moffat says, the church was in the world as it had to be, but the world was in the church as it ought not to be. And this is very uh, tricky how this happens. Often uh, culture just takes over a place very subtly. You don't even realize that it's happening, even as it's happening to you. Uh, think about fashion. There was a time when mullets and parachute pants were seen as a cool thing to wear. You could go around the streets looking like a rooster and people would still consider you a normal person. Uh, we call this the 1980s. Uh, otherwise, we also know it as Adelaide. Uh, what happens is that the, the fashion is so bad, but you don't even realize because everyone else is doing it. You're caught up in it and you don't see what's happening until you have to show photos of, to your kids of what you looked like 20 years ago. That's kind of what's happening in Corinth. This culture is all around them. It's, it's all pervasive and it's infiltrating their thinking and their, their church, the way that they relate to each other. And they don't even realize it. It's just happened subtly and it's taking over them. They're losing their identity. They were set apart for God, called to be distinctive and different. But now they're just like everyone else. And so Paul calls them back. He's telling them, be what God has made you to be. Remember your identity and live out of that. But I want you to notice just how gentle he is about it. And this is really surprising. Uh, I mean, often when someone's doing the wrong thing, we just want to pile on and tell them exactly what they're doing wrong and what they need to do differently. And don't get me wrong, Paul will do some of that later on in this letter. That We'll find him being very clear in his rebukes and very clear in his instructions. But he starts by speaking to their identity. He tells them who they are before he tells them what to do. And that's because he understands the power of the gospel. You see, the Christian message is unique because it's all based on grace it's based on what Christ has done for us rather than on what we have done for God. You see, we're all sinners. We're imperfect. We fall short of what God expects and demands of us. But the wonderful thing is that Jesus wasn't like that. Jesus lived a perfect life on our behalf and then he died for our sins in our place. He took the punishment that we deserve. And now if we acknowledge this and come to him, if we call out to him, as Paul puts it in verse two, we can be accepted and embraced by him and given a new identity. We're sanctified and called his saints, not because of what we have done, but because of what Christ has done. This is all of God's grace. As Hans Konzelman puts it, holiness is received, not achieved. Now, how does it make you feel when you know that you're forgiven, when you're told that you're accepted? How does it make you feel when you've been made a saint, not because of what you've done, but because of what Christ has done for you? I reckon it makes you feel thankful, makes you feel amazed, humbled, and it makes you feel motivated. 
You want to be who God has made you to be because that's how it works. When we realize who we are, we want to be that person. When we understand our identity, we want to live that out. So that's why Paul does this. He doesn't question their identity as Christians. He actually reinforces it because he knows that this is the thing that will help them to change. He brings them back to their identity. And that's what he would want us to hear as well. Anthony Thistleton writes that Christians are called to be what God has already made them. And that's what we're called to do in this culture, in our time. Uh, when I described Corinth, I couldn't help but see my own city in here as well. Uh, I live in Melbourne, rated one of the world's most livable cities. And if you ever come here, you'll be just amazed by it. It's beautiful, there's parks, there's beaches, there's a random brown river running through the middle of it. But it's spectacular. If you've ever been to the MCG on a Friday night, there's a big crowd, you'll just see how the city lights up. You may be watching from a similar spectacular city, Brisbane, London, Geelong. There's lots of amazing cities in our modern world. And the culture of those cities is very similar to the culture of Corinth. There's ambition. It's all about getting ahead, climbing the ladder, whether that's in terms of wealth or fame, social standing. And everywhere we're being offered pleasure. Whatever we want, we can have whatever makes you happy. That's certainly true here in Melbourne where I am today. And it's probably true wherever you are as well. And it's easy for this to overcome God's people. We can find the same values of our city infusing us without us even realizing it. Now, it feels a little bit different now during lockdown. I mean, how can I be of the world when I'm not even in it anymore, basically? But actually, I reckon that this time has shown me uh, just how much of the world is in me already. I mean, we felt it first, didn't we, when the toilet paper started flying off the shelves, that, that instinct to get something for ourselves before anyone else took it. Or alternatively, that kind of instinct to look down on and, and judge everyone else who was doing that and to place ourselves above them on the moral high ground. And then everything started getting shut, shut down. I mean, how did we feel when the footy stopped, when the cafes were closed and the shopping centres and all of these new inconveniences were added? I mean, uh, my spirit just rumbles at the thought of uh, juggling my job while also trying to teach my kids and do homeschooling with them. I mean, I'm going to lose so much me time. But that's the language of our culture, isn't it? Our culture is all about self about my comfort, my ambition, my uh, best interests. And so I'm realizing how many wants have become needs, how many blessings have become demands. The world has told me to live for pleasure and comfort. And when some of those things are taken away, I just grumble because I want to live for myself. And so really the world is not just out there, it's in here. So God calls me to be something different. I am, we are his people, sanctified, called to be different, set apart. We are saints. And now it's time to be saints, to live out our identity. Well, Paul wants the Corinthians to understand their identity. And then he also wants them to embrace uh, the idea of unity. 
See, this was a very fractious and divided church. Uh, there was squabbling within the church. There were court cases. Uh, two people in the church would start some kind of disagreement. And instead of just working it out quietly, they'd take their, their friend to court to sort it out. Uh, there was constant jostling for position and influence in the church. Everyone was trying to get ahead of everyone else. And we also get some indication that they looked down on other churches, that they saw themselves as unique, as special, as different, as better than everyone else. And so Paul tells them to understand who they are and what they're a part of. Paul tells the church at Corinth that they need to see themselves as part of something bigger. They are the church of God, he writes in verse 2, that is in Corinth, uh, together with all those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. This is actually one of the, the beautiful and unique things about Christianity. The church at Corinth is truly a church, a collective of God's people, a place where God has chosen to dwell, and yet each uh, and yet each church is also part of something bigger, a larger church, the church, the church of God. It's like DNA. If I, if I took a hair out of my head and you put it under a microscope, you would see my DNA. You would see that it was mine, that this belonged to me, but it would also point to the larger me. That's what the church is like as well. Each church is still a part of what God is doing, and it's also part of this larger thing. The church of Corinth is part of the church of God. This is an important thing for the Corinthians to remember, and it's an important thing for us to remember too. Uh, the story is told about a man stranded on a deserted island. Turns out he's a Christian. And when he's rescued, they notice, his rescuers notice that there's three huts along the beach. They ask him, well, which, what were all of the huts for? He says, the first hut was my house. The second hut was my church. And then they say, well, well what was the third hut for? He's like, oh, yeah, that was the church that I used to go to. Right. Christians, we could start a theological argument in an empty room or on a deserted beach. We have this... Uh, thing within us that always seems to drive us away from unity. We're called to be this one church of God, and yet so often we're prone to dividing over the most contentious and, and stupid things you could find. I remember hearing about a church that split over where they put their piano. I remember hearing about another church called Grace Church. They, they split and the breakaway group was called Greater Grace, as if they didn't really understand the irony of that name. Now, anyone who's been in the church for a while could probably tell stories like this as well. And yet in these past few weeks, we might also be able to tell stories of a new sense of unity. In the last week of March, the third week of March, basically the whole world went on lockdown and churches scrambled to put their services online. Uh, in the days after this, I, I saw an article that showed... Uh, pictures of families um, around the world huddling around uh, their TVs or their computers, experiencing church wherever they were. And I have to tell you, I just found this incredibly moving. Uh, I love seeing the, all of these people, God's people, spread around the world in similar situations to us. And it reminded me that we are part of the church of God we're experiencing this in our own church as well. I mean, we've got people logging on today from more than 60 countries across the world. G'day to everyone in 
Swaziland today. It's great to have you with us. A couple of weeks ago, we had communion over Zoom uh, with some friends in Italy and in Spain. And just seeing the video trailer for this 1 Corinthians series, I just well up seeing people from across the globe. And so in a strange way, this moment of separation is actually bringing us closer together. We're being reminded that we are the people of God, the church of God, spread across space and even time. This is who we are. This is a moment for us to learn and embrace unity. I also think that if we can do this, we have a remarkable opportunity. And that's the last thing that I think Paul wants to uh, talk about here. See, living in a progressive, ambitious city like Corinth, life would have actually been pretty tiring. When you're constantly in the rat race, when you're trying to establish yourself, you can never rest. You have to earn your place, uh, prove your worth constantly. You can't ever uh, keep, you have to just keep going and it's exhausting because that's what happens when you're pursuing your own agenda. When you're living for your own advancement, you're always insecure And so Paul gives them the opportunity to have rest. They're constantly thinking about what they need to be, what they need to have. And then he tells them what they already have. Look at verse four. I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace of God that was given you in Christ Jesus, that in every way you were enriched in him in all speech and all knowledge, even as the testimony about Christ was confirmed among you, so that you're not lacking in any gift as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will sustain you to the end, guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of his Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. You see, the Corinthians are desperate to have more, but he wants them to see what they already have. They have the grace of God given to them in Christ Jesus. They're enriched in him. They're not lacking in any gift, and this is all secure. Christ will sustain them right to the end. This is what the gospel gives us. You see, if these people fix their eyes on what they already have, they'll be so much happier. Stephen Um again writes, the gospel says, stop striving to build an identity. You've been given one free of charge because of the striving of another in your place. You no longer have to live in order to build an identity, but you can live into the identity that has been given to you. You can rest. When you really understand your identity in Christ, you have the opportunity to rest. And he also wants them to know that they have each other. If they embrace unity, they can experience the fellowship of Jesus Christ. They don't have to compete anymore. They can celebrate with each other and they'll be able to do so much more. They can stop serving themselves and serve the church and then the city around them. When they just stop thoughtlessly imbibing the culture of Corinth, then they can actually step in and change the culture and reshape it. This is the opportunity before them. You see, Corinth was a crazy, self-satisfied, self-serving place. But of course, underneath all of this, they were searching for meaning. G.K. Chesterton once said quite insightfully that every man who knocks on the door of a brothel is looking for God. You see, anyone who's seeking after pleasure and pursuing all of that 
they're looking for something to fill them up. There's a hole there. There is a gap that they sense. And this was the case in Corinth. Underneath all of the pleasure-seeking was the search for something more. And I think it's the same now, particularly now, in our time. See, this is a message that we need to hear as well. Even though we're in lockdown, we're still incredibly ambitious. People want to have the most awesome TikTok, get the best meme. Taking out the rubbish has become a, a fashion show. We're constantly assessing each other's Zoom backgrounds. So we're still trying to make ourselves. Even though we're locked away, we're still ambitious. We're still trying to prove ourselves. And yet there's a kind of desperation about it, a kind of weirdness. Just the other day, I jumped on the New York Times website. New York had had their worst day of the crisis, over 700 deaths, taking the overall number of deaths in New York State uh, to almost 5,500. And there was a whole bunch of articles about how grim and apocalyptic this all was. That was at the top of the page, but as I scrolled down, there was a link to an interview with the designer, Tom Ford, about how to look good on camera, how to a masterclass in lighting for your next video conference. Meanwhile, over in England, the Queen had made a special public appeal to the people of Great Britain, a sterling call to action as they battle their own crisis. She did in a green dress, however, and this just sent a million photoshoppers was the inspiration. And so uh, within a day, there were all kinds of new memes of the Queen dressed up as a Star Trek commander, a Tiger King sweater, a shirt with a Baby Yoda meme, and that, which already feels impossibly old. And look, it's all really, really funny stuff, but it's a really strange and weird combination, isn't it? Up the top, we're, we're talking about the apocalypse and then we've got a bunch of memes. Uh, this is the biggest crisis of our lives that we've lived through. People are dying in their thousands. The economy is broken. People are going stir crazy with isolation and anxiety and we're making memes. What's going on here? Why is this our response I want to suggest it's actually because uh, we're trying to take control of this situation. You see, our culture has told us from the day dot that we've lived that we can make our own world, that we can make ourselves, that we have the power to do this. We can be whoever we want to be and we can have pleasure whenever we want it. And so we're not going to let this virus take it away from us. We're going to control it. But the problem is that doesn't always work. We can't just be optimistic and chipper and overcome it. And in the middle of the night, you feel that fear, that panic. As you think about the future, will you lose your job? Maybe you've already lost your job. How, how are you going to survive and provide for your family in the next couple of months? And even after all of this, what if the economy doesn't recover for years? What if we can't find a vaccine? Or, or what if, even after all the preparation and all the planning, you get the virus and you can't fight it off? Not because there's not enough beds, but because this virus is too strong for you. 
It's tempting in this moment to, to try and just control things, but it doesn't work. And I think God is giving us the opportunity to rest, to stop trying to make ourselves, to stop trying to control everything and to go back to the one who has made us. You see, our world is out of control. It's not actually our world. It never was. It's God's world. And he's still in control. And the sooner we recognize this, the sooner we acknowledge this, the sooner we'll find his peace. God is inviting us home. God is giving us the opportunity to rest in him, to come back to our Father in heaven who knows our fears and can still them, to find our identity in him, to be his people, to be his church with brothers and sisters, a family that supports us, and ultimately to find rest in him forever. This is what God offers us. And all we need to do is call on him. There's a little box down the bottom of your screen. It just says live prayer. Why don't you click it today? Why don't you reach out? Why don't you ask someone for prayer? Why don't you ask your God to help you? Why don't you call on him? How about we do that together right now? Father God, we want to thank you that you are in control. And so we call on you. We ask that you remind us who we are in you and we'll live that out. We ask, Lord, that we will be a people known by unity who embrace the call to be your church. Thank you for this opportunity to rest in you, to learn what we have together. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for what you have done. We call on you in trust. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to our podcast. If you'd like to know more about our church, or if you'd like to donate to the work of City on a Hill, please visit cityonahill.com.au.